The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Message tonight is on uh, Blessed Salvation out of the Beatitudes. So if you want to open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we will read verses 1 through 12. So I do want to thank the pastor for the opportunity to allow me to come again to the pulpit and uh, preach the word. It is a heavy responsibility, and I'll try to do justice for this task, but I know on my own I'm not worthy, but, you know, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will... uh, guide me through this message, and that it's through him that you will be edified with what I speak of tonight, and it's certainly not of myself. So, so again, uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we will uh, uh, start on uh, verse 1, and we will read through verse 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he was said, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets were before you. So let us pray. Father, um, we just pray tonight that uh, that you... uh, will um, have your hand in this message, that uh, you will uh, give me the strength and wisdom and boldness to preach this message as you would have me do it, and that it would be a blessing to this church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there have been many messages that talk about the Beatitudes of the New Testament version of the Proverbs. In fact, as I was kind of researching this, I was kind of looking at different commentaries. And a lot of them do talk about, you know, words to live by, a code of ethics, uh, just uh, that, you know, how to be a great person and a Christian by if you follow these guidelines. But tonight I kind of want to tell you, show you that it's just more than just uh, words to live by, that actually it does require uh, personal salvation through Jesus Christ and that you trust Jesus and only Jesus as your Lord and Savior that you need the new birth in order to understand the true meaning of these verses. That's the title of my message, Blessed Salvation. Now, you may ask why I came right up front with this passage that requires a person be saved to live in these sayings, and I will get to that in a minute. Um, I do want to acknowledge that many of the points of this sermon come from this uh, book of Barton Lloyd-Jones, Studies on the Sermon of the Mount, um, this is a classic, and I just, I read this, and it just seemed to be so much more than what so many of the other commentaries and books were about. And as you 
as I read it and I got into it, I definitely could see that, um, that this knows what it is. So as I pointed out earlier, many have argued that the Beatitudes are a code to live by and that by displaying the characteristics of being poor, um, sober, and of course this, when I speak of sober, I'm talking about mournful or serious, not in a sense of being drunk. Meek, striving for righteousness through good works, merciful, pure, peaceful, or victimized, that somehow they will, you will be blessed and you will be in God's favor. In fact, one of the definitions of blessed is used as happy, so that the, so that we can read the Beatitudes as happy are they, etc. You know, as they follow these. But there is also another ter- definition of blessed, and that is approved by God. And if you think about it, when someone says to you, "God bless you." What they're really saying is, you know, God approve of you, not just God make happy you. And it is this definition that I kind of want to lean towards that we use in discussing the Beatitudes tonight. So it's not to say that one who is in Jesus Christ will not be happy if they follow the Beatitudes, as they will be happy, but they'll be happy in their salvation and not just by doing the Beatitudes. So so first I want to go to... state that, you know, when I say that we need to be saved in order to believe in the Beatitudes, that we need to look at both the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude, where Jesus states that ye will be in the kingdom of heaven. And so if you think about it, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit that, will be, that they shall see the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, we just have to look over at then at John chapter 3 and what, what it also says about it. So in John chapter 3... Uh, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, ye know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he was old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So, when it, so actually when it talks about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, it's really talking about the same thing. So really if you take John chapter 3 saying that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God, and then you, and then you read the Beatitudes that says, um, blessed are those that are poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of heaven. Really, if you logically, that just means that you need to be born again to be poor in spirit to see the kingdom of heaven. So, and he says that, and there's a couple of beatitudes that basically state that. So this kind of, I use this then as a means of kind of just going through the rest of the beatitudes, just to show that it's the steps of salvation that are that are put through in the Beatitudes in order to uh, just show that it is through our salvation that, you, that the Beatitudes are based on. So let's d- dive a little deeper into each of these Beatitudes to show exactly how they relate to our salvation through Jesus Christ and that this is not just a code for living. So the first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is the first beatitude and starts us off on the road of salvation. So, so blessed are the poor in spirit, so notice it states poor, but in spirit. So many of the people 
in their word, see the word poor and think that one must be poor or willing to give all their wealth away to follow this saying. In fact, they'll look at the corresponding passage in Luke 6.20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed ye be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And some of these people, some have actually thought of this as being material poor, when Christ is speaking of a spiritual things. And they will hold up the passage in Matthew 6.19. Lay not up yourselves treasures upon earth, where moths and rusts corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Lay not up yourself treasures Thus, and therefore you'll be poor. And then in Matthew nineteen twenty four, and again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they'll also use like the story of the rich young ruler. And their reasoning is, if you are poor and don't value material goods, you can go to heaven. So while it's true that you must give up God above all material things and all other things, or you must be willing to, this is really not what Matt, Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. He's talk, when he talks about poor in spirit, it means you have nothing to offer. That you recognize that you are nothing. That you have no worth in your own self. Uh, God is not a respecter of persons, which means that he doesn't look at you as being worthy of, in yourself of anything. So to give respect is to give honor or due, due to somebody. And it's actually since God is above all and over all, he does not need to respect anybody for who they are because he is over everybody. In fact, God sees our own righteousness as filthy rags. So Isaiah 64, verse 6, And we are all as unclean things, and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. So once we know that we have nothing to give God and have nothing good of ourselves, we are at the beginning of the salvation process. And this is called total depravity. So we see ourselves as dirty, rotten sinners that have nothing in ourselves that can save us. So we are dirt poor in spirit. So the next one I want to explore, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, so blessed are they that mourn. Now this doesn't mean that we have to be stern, serious, never smiling, always a sad person. A person who always looks like they're about to cry about what is going on in the world. But it does say that we do mourn for our own sins and for the world. So actually, I do want to read a portion here from Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, studies on the Sermon on the Mount on, uh, that I thought was a great passage. And so it says, uh, A man who is truly Christian is a man who mourns also because of the sin of others. He does not stop at himself. He sees the same thing in others. He is concerned about the state of society and the state of the world, and as he reads his newspaper, he does not stop at what he sees or simply express disgust at it. He mourns at it because men can so spend their lives in this world. He mourns because of the sins of others. Indeed, he goes beyond that and mourns over the state of the whole world as he sees the moral muddle and unhappiness and suffering of mankind and reads of wars and rumors of wars. He sees that the whole world is an unhealthy and unhappy condition, and he knows this is all due to sin, and he mourns because of it. And then it says, and This is why the Lord himself mourned. This is why he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's why he wept at the grave of Lazarus. He saw the, the horrid, ugly, foul things called sin that had come unto life and introduced death unto life. And he had upset life and made life unhappy. He wept because of that. He groaned in his spirit. And he saw the city of Jerusalem rejecting him and bringing upon self own damnation. We, he wept because of it. And, so the, and then it kind of goes down. It says, Therefore, then, is the New Testament teaching on the subject of this matter. 
What is meant by mourning in the spiritual sense is in the New Testament. The, perhaps the best we could do for it is a very antithesis of the spirit and the mind and outlook of the world, which, as the Lord put it, laughs now, look at the world outside, even in a time of war. It still tries to go on not looking at the true situation, ignoring it, and being happy. Let us eat, drink, and be merry is its motto. It laughs and says, don't dwell too much upon these things. To mourn is the exact opposite. The Christian man's attitude is different. But then it does talk about that, um, that not only do we mourn, but it does say that we, are to be comfort- that we shall be comforted. So the man who mourns is really happy, says Christ, and this appears to be a paradox. So what respect is he happy? Well, he becomes happy in a personal sense. A man who truly mourns because of his sinful state and condition is a man who's going to repent. He is indeed actually repenting already. The man who truly repents as the result of the work of the Holy Spirit upon him is a man who is certain to be led to the Lord Jesus Christ. Having seen his utter sinfulness and hopefulness, he looks for a Savior and he finds him in Christ. No one could truly know him as personal Savior and Redeemer unless he has first known all that it is to mourn. It is only a man who cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me, who could go on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that is something that follows us as, as the night the day. If we truly mourn, we shall rejoice, and we shall be made happy, for we shall be comforted. For it is when a man sees himself in his innumerable hopelessness that the Holy Spirit reveals unto him, and the Lord Jesus Christ is his perfect salvation. Through the Spirit he sees that God has died for his sin and is standing as his advocate in the presence of God. He sees in him the perfect provision that God has made and immediately is comforted. This is the astonishing thing about a Christian life. Your great sorrow leads to joy, and without the sorrow there is no joy. So I thought this was so much better than what I could <laughs> preach. So It was a long passage, but I just thought that that was so... Great to uh, just kind of explain the, uh, the beatitude about mourning. So, um, so we we do uh, speak to us of mourning for our sins and the sins of the world, and we know that as sinners we realize that we have done a horrible thing to God, and we are transgressors of God's law and righteousness, and we feel horrible for what we've done, but we know we offended a holy God, and we deserve nothing but punishment in the eternal lake of fire. So, First Corinthians. Uh, 6, verses 9 and 10. Know ye not, the unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And you could also refer to the Ten Commandments, you know. I think when we had the... uh, uh, class on the Ten Commandments, uh, actually it's almost a couple years ago now, you know, and I explained how the, we going through all the Ten Commandments that we pretty much have broken all of them. So again, you could, if you understand that you've transgressed against God's law and you feel bad about that, but that is the beginning of uh, repentance and faith and, um, and then salvation. So we realize that we are condemned and should be condemned for offending God. And we realize this condemnation was our own making and our own choosing. So and after the famous verse of John 3.16 comes these verses in 17 and 18. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we mourn because of our sin, and only if we are 
saved will we mourn for your... Only if you are saved, you will mourn for your sin. And if you are saved, God will comfort you. And this is repentance, but it is only accompanied by our, the next point. So the next one is, uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, I like uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' point on this one. Actually, no, I'm sorry, I got, got off my notes a little bit here. So, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, being meek does not mean being a pushover, but being meek requires that you do turn from yourself and look towards others. So, being meek means that you do not always take charge you have, and have the my way or the else attitude. It is to look for others that are what they have to offer and to value them even over your own ideas and even to value them over yourself. So, Paul in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. So we are to be humble. So Jesus said in Luke fourteen eleven, For whosoever exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. Now one can have many responsibilities and still be humble, and we can look to the story of the centurion. So in Matthew chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, it says, The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shalt come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say unto this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And he goeth, and to, an, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. So here is a man who had a powerful position. So the definition of centurion is, means someone who commands a hundred men. And the root word is the same, it's for century. So yet he knew he did not have the power to heal his servant and he had to turn to another. So here is where I go to um, passage here. So, so again, Martin Long Jones says, Then what is meekness? I think we could sum it up this way. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is therefore two things. It is my attitude towards myself and is an expression of that in my relationship to others. You see how inevitably it follows that being poor in spirit and mourning, a man can never be meek unless he is poor in spirit. A man can never be meek unless he sees himself as a vile sinner. These other things must come first, but what I have a true view of myself in terms of poverty and spirit and mourning because of my sinfulness, I am led to see that there must be an absence of pride. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not sense any sense of glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself that he can boast. It also means he does not assert himself. You see, there is a negation of the popular psychology of the day which says, assert yourself, express your personality. The man who is meek does not want to do so. He is ashamed of it. The meek man, therefore, does not demand anything for himself. He does not take all of rights as claims. He does not make demands for his position, his privileges, his possessions, his status for life. He is like the man depicted in Paul in Philippians 2, let his mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Christ did not assert that right to equality with God. He deliberately did not. And that is the point which you and I have to come. 
Okay, and this is where our salvation comes. So we do realize that we have no glory in ourselves. We cannot do anything in ourselves, and we have to turn to another, Jesus Christ, to save us. And that nothing but Jesus and what he did, the perfect life he led, the suffering death on the cross for his sins and rising again, it's only his work that can save us, not anything we do on our own. So like the centurion, we have to put our faith in him. As we realize we are poor in spirit, knowing we are depraved sinners, mourn for our sins and seek to turn away from him, repentance, we shall in meekness turn to another in Christ Jesus, as we show in this passage. So next we look at, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this one I always like, because this one is the one that really shows who the Christians really are. Now this beatitude also seems to speak of a continuous action, for we have need of of food and drink daily. And this beatitude says that the person who is blessed will daily seek righteousness, and that righteousness is Jesus Christ. And I know when I think of hunger, you know, especially in the spiritual sense, I do think of the bread of life. And of course, that is also speaking of the manna that was given to the uh, Israelites in the wilderness. And that the Lord provided manna to eat, and it only lasted a day, so they had to continually search and gather it. And we really should be seeking righteousness daily like we hunger, and it should pain us if we do not seek righteousness, much like if we were to miss a meal. And when I think thirst, I think of living water, and of course that's talking about the woman at the well. It says, if we drink of the living water, we shall never thirst again, which is John uh, chapter 4, 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinketh of the water I shall give him shall never first thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So obviously in verse 14, it's speaking of salvation when it talks about everlasting life. So I do have to ask you then, do you hunger, regularly hunger and thirst after righteousness? It always makes me wonder when people will claim to be Christians, but they, they won't, for some reason they just can't make it to church, they won't read their Bibles, uh, they never pray or in any way think about Jesus or live any sort of Christian life. And really, as Christians, we would want, we'd want to read our Bible. We want to listen to the pastor preach. We want to gather ourselves in fellowship to worship the Lord. It should be as natural to a Christian to seek righteousness as it is for a physical man to eat and drink. For Christ saved us and made us alive so we should, we should do his work. So Ephesians uh, 6, 6, even as we were dead in sins, has he quickened us together in Christ, for as grace we are saved. And Ephesians 6, 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk with him. So unless we are sick, I mean, you tend to get hungry and thirsty if you go without food or drink for any length of time. And likewise, as a Christian, we should get spiritually hungry or thirsty if we get away from God's word or forsake a Christian walk for any length of time. So if you do not eat or drink physical foods for too long, you'll eventually get weak and die. And so those persons who can seem to go with weeks or months without attending to the things of God um, may not be even spiritually alive. I mean, they may be actually spiritually dead, just like the physical person who would go for, you know, weeks or months, you know, without eating, obviously probably isn't even alive, if they would never eat. So, um, and this beatitude also speaks, also changes from being strictly about salvation, but it also moves into the stage of sanctification, and this is where we go into the next beatitude. So, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
So speaks both of what God did for us and for being merciful to us as a sinner and saving us, and for us to be merciful to others in forgiveness and in love. And when I see this beatitude, I think of the passage in Matthew 18, 23-25, which is a classic case of uh, where we're to be, be merciful when we um, obtain mercy. So therefore is, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which will take into account of his servants. So this is one of Jesus' parables. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. For so much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay ye all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But that safe servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands upon him and took him by the throat and saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down on his face and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay ye all. But he would not and went and cast him into prison until he paid the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very sorry and came and told their Lord all that had been done. Then his Lord, after he had called them, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the, the debt, because thou desirest me. Should not thou have also compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due to him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one of his brothers his trespasses. So this beatitude definitely talks about, you know, that... Since, you, since I have given mercy unto you, especially through salvation, that you in turn need to be merciful to the others. To others. And really, I mean, this speaks of the second of the great commandments. You know, the first one being love God. But then the second one is that we are to love um, our fellow man. And it's only as saints of God that can we really accomplish this through the spirit of which God commands. Even though we will come short, we should strive to follow. So the next beatitude is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And again, this speaks to the perfectness of Christ in us, for only the perfect shall see God in his glory, and we must be glorified saints to see him. Um, so this one is, again, uh, does speak of sanctification. Of course, in our physical selves, I mean, we are not perfect. I, everyone knows that. We have um, imperfection. But as far as the righteousness... If we have the righteousness of Christ, we are perfect because we're, we have Christ's righteousness, not our own. So really when it says, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God, this definitely is speaking of salvation because it's only through Christ's uh, imputed righteousness to us that we achieve the righteousness that will allow us to um, see God, which means God in heaven, that we would be in heaven through uh, Christ's righteousness. So blessed are the peacemakers, this is, this is the next one, shall, they be, shall be called the children of God. So we are to live peaceably among all men if possible, Romans twelve eighteen. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. And I, in Colossians 1, 20, and having made peace unto the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him I say whether all things be in earth or things in heaven and so we are reconciled to God 
through Jesus Christ and now have peace with God even though we have sinned. Now the interesting thing is it does say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. A lot of people will tend to think that, uh, read that as not peacemaker, but as a peacekeeper. And um, there, is a, there is a difference. A peacekeeper is one who will likely compromise with the world in order to maintain a semblance of peace. Uh, of course, this is when I get a little bit political, but whenever I hear about UN peacekeepers keeping the peace, you know, usually a lot of times they're not really keeping the peace. Get, well, I mean, there's still a lot of animosity there, and they're just, um, there's no real peace. It's just kind of a truce is kind of what it is. But a peacemaker will achieve real peace through the conquering of the opponent. And Jesus defeats sin in us without having been, with, with having been justified in us being justified and sanctified through him. So, a peacemaker is one who, um, again, will uh, bring peace between us and God through what Jesus Christ did for us. And it's and really, for us to be peacemakers is to tell others about Jesus Christ and to have them achieve peace with God. And that's how to be a peacemaker and not just a peacekeeper. Okay, and then, uh, Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say in all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So, um, do you want to say that the world will despise you if you're a Christian, if you're living a holy life? Um, we, we will be persecuted. So, um, Mark 13, 13, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, for ye shall, shall for he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved. And first John three thirteen, marvel not my brethren if the world hates you. And John fifteen nineteen, if ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, and I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And we will be persecuted one way or the other. In fact, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And then, um, then it says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they are the prophets which were before you. And then um, Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house, nor brethren, nor sisters, nor father, nor mother, nor wife, nor children, nor lands, for my sake, are the Gospels. For he shall receive a hundredfold now at this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. So Jesus states that we will be rewarded in heaven with great riches, but it's not in this life that we are going to achieve the great riches, it's in the next life. So in this life, we are likely to be persecuted. And really, if you're not persecuted, you're probably either not living as a Christian should, and you really need to examine yourself to find out if you're really in the faith or just a pretender. In fact, there used to be a cartoon out in the vestibule. I don't think it's there anymore. It might be. That um, it talks, it said that if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict so if you are a Christian, you should be, you know, be producing the fruit that shows you are a Christian. Otherwise, the scripture states you will be like dead wood, be cast into the fire. 
So I, I do hope that what I uh, brought to you tonight will be a blessing to you and that what you might have learned should be something new and that was said. And in that, I guess, you know, we go, we, we go out and live the Beatitudes, but not to be a child of the King, uh, but because we are a child of the King, that we are uh, to live the Beatitudes. So let us pray. Father, uh, we just uh, thank you so much for this message tonight. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, bless the congregation, that uh, what they heard would be a blessing to them, and, as, uh, and that everything that was done was uh, according to your will and for your honor and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.